When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune. So this is sort of my weekly wrap-up video where I pick a a handful of topics, handful of news items that I find to be interesting, uh, newsworthy, and oftentimes are are maybe underreported by the financial media and do my best to to expand on these, educate you, and and inform you. Now, usually here on a Friday, I I take some time at the beginning to discuss the precious metals markets and maybe some other markets as well. However, here in the United States, the markets are closed today. Additionally, as it relates to silver and gold, just yesterday I actually did an interview with Christopher Mullen. He came on my channel and, and he talked about the silver and gold markets from a purely technical perspective. I highly encourage you to, to check out that interview. Again, it's right on my channel, uh, the, the one that I just put up yesterday, uh, Thursday, April 18th. And he, you know, basically his, his idea was that over the short term, there's likely going to be some weakness in his opinion in the silver and gold markets but over the medium term six to 12 months we could be looking at some serious strength uh, some serious moves above resistance levels in both the silver and gold markets so i highly encourage you to check that out to, to hear his thoughts on it and i don't want to to beat a dead horse uh, in this case a, a, a dead horse that isn't even trading today so I thought I'd kind of switch gears and talk about something different, and that is the interconnectedness and therefore uh, uh, risk of contagion in today's global financial system. Basically, when I talk about contagion, uh, this might be a term that's familiar to many of you, but but basically what I mean is the the fact that today's financial system is very interconnected, whether we're looking at U.S. banks and, and their connectedness to each other, EU banks and their how they're connected to each other, or you know like across continents, across borders. Essentially, the idea is that if one major bank goes under, sometimes referred to as, as a GSIB or globally, a global systemically important bank then it's likely to have ramifications for any for, for many of the other banks. It's, you know, for example, when Lehman Brothers went under, it wasn't like the rest of the financial system was just kind of like, well, uh, their losses are gain. No, it, it was a contagion, right? No, no different than a virus that spreads from one individual to the next. And that's what this article is talking about here from Wolf Street. This is actually written by Don Quijonez, not Wolf Richter. He's their Spain, UK, and Mexico editor. And this one is talking about an alert that UBS put out regarding Spanish banks. Now, to summarize, I mean, Spanish banks are, are a key part of, of the EU banking system and um, a very risk a risky part of, of the EU banking system. Now, the risk here is that they're heavily exposed to Latin American markets, particularly Brazil and Mexico. Quote, 80% of the Eurozone's total banking exposure to the region is channeled through Spain, whose banks have around 384 billion euros of counterparty claims in the region. 
A shock in emerging and developing markets could also drag down the Eurozone economy, UBS said. Spanish banks' exposure to Latin America is equivalent to around 30% of Spain's GDP, 30%, and leaves both the country and the Eurozone susceptible to contagion effects from a crisis emerging in any of the major contingent economies, the author of the report. Now, I, I, I highlighted his name here, Themis Themistocleus. I just highlighted because I think that's an awesome name. And Ricardo Garcia Warren. Now, this is really interesting because, well, as it, as it states here, Spain's already dealing with some economic problems. And their banks are hardly in a, a safe position in terms of capital ratios. Basically, uh, how much do they have uh, in capital compared to their their overall, I guess, balance sheet or their overall you know exposure to some of these markets. In this case, below the 12% minimum set by the ECB. So they're risky. Their, their balance sheet is, is hardly in good position. They're already dealing with domestic uh, problems in terms of their economy. And as this goes on to say, they have a huge exposure to Latin American economies. In the case of uh, uh, Banco Santander, I, I don't expect to say these names correctly. I'm probably butchering it. Brazil is by far its biggest market, accounting for 26% of its global operating profits compared to just 17% for Spain. The, the Spanish too-big-to-fail lender also plans to expand its presence in Mexico by acquiring the remaining listed shares of its Mexican subsidiary worth just over 2.5 billion euros. So basically, it's, it's heavily exposed within Brazil. $150 billion worth of exposure in the third quarter of 2018, which is actually down from the first quarter. Still equivalent, uh, in this case, we're actually talking about Spanish banks as a whole, still equivalent to 47% of total foreign banking investments in the country. And then in Mexico's case, they've already invested over $160 billion in the economy. In this case, we're talking about BBVA, which is more heavily exposed to Mexico. Now, I don't think it takes a genius to realize what the risk is here. Regardless of how Brazil's economy is doing right now or Mexico's economy is doing right now, if you're heavily exposed to a foreign economy, in this case an emerging market, that's a risk. Now, it might be a risk that is never realized. In fact, it might be a risk that you can profit off of if, if, if Mexico and, and Brazil, if their, if their economies chug along smoothly and, and, and find good growth and not too high of inflation, etc. Then great, it's, it's, it's a positive for these banks. But we're talking about Brazil and Mexico here. In the second half of 2018, actually, Brazil was one of the many emerging markets that was hit pretty hard by the emerging market crisis. Hardly a crisis that it's out of as of yet. It's also a, a country um, that could potentially uh, find some, some detrimental effects from the continuing crisis in Venezuela. Namely, I'm talking about spillover effects in terms of refugees, of poor economic growth, and, and even... Uh, um, some sort of a civil war situation in Venezuela. Hardly good position. Plus, they're dealing with a whole host of, of political issues, uh, corruption, etc. Uh, so, <laughs> Brazil, hardly in a good position. And, and then there's Mexico, which they might refer to or talk more about here. Uh, Mexico being a country that, that is dealing with some serious problems uh, in terms of, of gang violence terms of political issues, and in terms of their oil industry. Actually, this was reported recently by Wolf Street uh, that their, their oil, uh, their, their state-sponsored oil uh, corporation, uh, PEMEX, Pemex, 
is in a really rough spot. In fact, Mexico, which is a pretty significant oil producer, recently became a net oil importer. Just to give you a sense of just how poorly their oil market is doing. And partly that's because they, they can't even secure their, their oil supply very well. They, they've dealt with, with like billions of dollars worth of oil that has been stolen from, from pipelines, partly due to corruption. They've had to resort to things like shipping the oil by truck rather than pipeline be, because of just how costly these thefts have been. And so Mexico, hardly in a good position either. In fact, I've, I've heard uh, one uh, notable uh, oil industry analyst, in fact, say before uh, that, that he wouldn't be surprised if Mexico heads the, in the direction of Venezuela not too far here off in the future. Now, will it be that bad? I don't know about that. But again, if we start to see a serious recession in Mexico or Brazil, uh, it, it could be kind of times up for, for the Spanish banking sector. And of course, if they have problems, the EU banking sector is going to have problems. And if they have problems, the whole global banking system and thus a global financial system and, and economy will have a major problem up ahead. So um, this article finally wraps up talking about uh, their, their more uh, present risk, their, their, their problem that they have to kind of deal with first and foremost, and that is Turkey. Now, I talked about this in, in the second half of 2018, that Spanish banks have a very high exposure to Turkish banks or to the Turkish economy, which they try to, as it says here, slash uh, their exposure by around a quarter in the first uh, between the first and third quarters of 2018 from 82 to 62 billion euros but they're still much more exposed than any other foreign banks and the risks in turkey are not going away anytime soon in fact we've been following this as of late uh, uh turkey has has again been been seeing some serious devaluation of their currency not as drastic as, as what they saw in, in in the kind of middle part of 2018 but still pretty significant and they're dealing with geopolitical issues they're kind of torn between nato and the united states and Russia, their 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 leader uh, er, Erdogan is uh, recently um, kind of suffered a bit of a, a loss in terms of their re-election. He was re-elected; his party was, but but it was not by the margin that many people expected. Some major cities actually went in uh, in a different direction to, towards a different party, which is certainly worrying. Uh, and 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 he kind of maintains his his. Uh, I don't know, dictatorial dictatorial control over their financial system, right? Um, kind of some, some worrying signs in terms of, of how much control he has over their central bank, which is, is also worrying. And, and it has shied away many investors from the country. So, so these are some serious problems, this contagion risk. And, and actually, next uh, article that I want to talk about here is a different contagion one. And this is, in this case, China. Now, I'm not going to go into this. This is from Zero Hedge, maybe a publication that many of you guys read on a daily basis. I certainly do. Highly encourage you to actually read through this. Now, basically, to sum it up, this chart actually sums it up pretty well. Missed bond payments quadruple in 2018. Now, obviously, 2019 is pretty low since we're not very far into the year. But the, the theme here is that China has begun to realize they realized actually probably back in 2016, 17, even before that, that their economy is, is, is an economy that's dependent on the growth of debt, which has worked extremely well for them over the short term, over the last 10 years. But this bubble at some point has got to pop. It's got to pop in, in terms of either massive deleveraging or a massive devaluation of their currency. Either way, it's going to have some serious implications 
in terms of economic growth and, and in terms of maybe even the stability of the, the, the reigning Communist Party. So over the last, I don't know, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, one of their major goals has been to deleverage, uh, hopefully in a safe manner. So what this means is, is they continue this massive credit injections into their economy to try and stabilize it. They continue to try and stabilize their stock markets, even their real estate markets, I'm sure, in some examples. But they've also allowed something that they haven't in the past, and that is actually a pretty significant amount of, of bankruptcies. And in this case, as you can see right here, missed bond payments. Now, again, if you go through this, it talks about all these different financial institutions. And At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. China that are, are defaulting on loans. And, and, and basically, uh, you know, if you look at some of these, uh, where was it? They were talking about one financial institution here that's rated something like tr uh, cut to triple C from triple C plus by, by Standard & Poor's. Uh, uh, like junk debt, just massive junk debt here in the Chinese banking system. Um, and, and and as this uh, talks about up here, uh, the the Chinese banking system. Let's see here, the forty trillion dollar financial system is roughly three times China's G China's GDP. This is a massive system. Now, in this case, in terms of contagion, is there a global contagion risk? You bet there is, absolutely. But now I couldn't put concrete numbers on this, but there exposure in terms of, of when these banks go up, the risk of, say, like a JP Morgan or a Deutsche Bank going up is maybe not as as high as if one of these other, you know, say Morgan uh, 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 Stanley or, or Goldman Sachs went belly up, that JP Morgan and Deutsche Bank would go belly up as well because they're, they're just not as exposed as, as some of these Western banks. Doesn't mean they aren't. And maybe they have more regional exposure as well to, to Japan or, or South Korea's banking system. But I would expect them to not be as as exposed. And I think that's what many people would probably say, that you know, the risk of contagion from China is, is lower because they're probably more so dealing with domestic debt exposure. And, and if it's within their own borders, it can be controlled by their own government. But the problem here extends beyond the financial system in the sense that uh, of of, of uh, exposure to each other and, and counterparty risk and whatnot. More so, I think it relates to the, the strength of their economy in terms of, of their consumption as well as their, their currency and, and how that relates to the global economy. So, so China's in a really tough spot. As I said before, they have recognized even publicly this, this debt problem that they have. And yet, despite trying to act on it, they've also moved in directions such as in the first quarter of this year that would suggest that they are still attempting to try and reflate this debt bubble to try and keep it from popping violently because the last thing that China wants is a hard landing, a popping of this bubble. What they're trying to do is slowly let air out of the bubble. Now, I've long held the opinion that that's not possible. Whether we're talking about China and, and their kind of command economy, the central command economy, their, their 
basically sent communist economy when it comes down to it, or the United States or European country. It's just not possible. And so I believe very firmly that China has two options here. They can allow this bubble to pop through some sort of massive deleveraging and potential collapse of their financial system, and, and they have to rebuild. And then that would have some serious implications for their economic growth, potential recession, which is huge when, when we're talking about a country that's like at 6% growth right now. Uh, officially, it's probably much lower than that. Or they can continue to and try and inflate this bubble, and, and ultimately it's going to end in, in a... a a massive devaluation of their currency and very, very high inflation. Not to say that that wouldn't happen in the other case. I think it would happen in that case as well. But either way, this has serious implications for the global economy. Now, I know some people will come on here and say, well, you know, when you look at the Chinese yuan, the risk of devaluation, it's not that big of a deal compared to to, uh, the dollar or the euro because yuan, it's not held in very high quantities by foreign central banks. It's a very small part of the SDR basket, etc. But you got to understand that if you look back to say 2015 and the devaluation of the yuan back then, that had some serious global implications. Additionally, just in the last six months, we've seen a pretty decent weakening of China's economy, and that has you know, we've seen that 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 translate to poor economic growth in places like South Korea, Japan. Australia, even Canada, and I would argue even the EU and the United States. You know, some people would even go so far as to say China is the key in terms of inflation, in terms of of, of economic growth around the world. Never mind the United States or the EU. If China goes under, the whole party is over. And so what happens in China does not stay in China. This isn't Las Vegas here. This is huge. Right. And, and, and if you're looking for where the next crisis begins, China's got to be at the top of your list. Some people are going to disagree, but it's got to be at the top of the list. If China deals with some sort of a domestic financial crisis, whether it's due to a devaluation of their currency and a huge capital flight risk or, or, or a deleveraging of their, their debt bubble, a popping of their bubble, not just a slow deflation, it's, it's going to lead to, I think, a, a, a total economic collapse in places like Australia. And it's going to lead potentially to, to the very same outcome in the EU, the United States, Canada, Japan, etc. So you got to keep an eye on this. Again, I would encourage you to read this article uh, as well as that one that I, I previously showed you from, from Wolf Street. Now, moving on, there's, there's three more things I want to uh, talk about here. So, so hang tight. Uh, two topics here relating to, to geopolitics. This one... Um, talking about Libya and the situation in Libya, this is something to keep an eye on. Basically, what you have is a uh, a, a general, uh, uh, Haftar, Khalifa Haftar, who uh, commands the um, Libyan National Army, which is an uh, an army that is in opposition to the UN-backed uh, GNA Government of National Accord Army. And what's really interesting here is, is that Trump appears to be throwing his support behind General Haftar and his army for, in this case, securing Libya's oil resources. He also talks about combating uh, uh, terrorism because, you know, since the collapse of Libya in, in 2011, we've seen uh, kind of a vacuum in terms of, of, of power. And you've seen them kind of uh, a very fertile ground for the growth of groups such as al-Qaeda, uh, ISIS, and, and other affiliated groups. And, and now Trump is, is uh, supporting him. 
throwing the support behind him, seemingly. Which is interesting, because the UN is backing the, the Tripoli government, the government of National Accord government. So it, it'll be interesting to see what happens here in terms of, of how this is going to play out. Is this, is this going to end in a serious military confrontation or not? Now, I don't want to go into too much depth in, in this article specifically, except that it points out, interestingly, that, that at one point, um, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, actually urging a statement for Haftar to halt his advance. On the other hand, Trump is is kind of going against that and saying, you know, good job on, on securing their oil resources as well as as uh, um, combating terrorism and, and arguably probably at some point seizing control of the country. Um, now, I think Haftar has a very good chance of doing just that. Now, is he going to become in the next Muammar Gaddafi or, or what it's going to look like? It's hard to say. But something to keep in mind as they point out here, uh, Haftar is, pretend, uh, quote, the CIA's man in Libya. He actually spent, as it says, a couple of decades living in exile, a, few, a mere few minutes from the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, during Gaddafi's rule. So kind of an outsider coming back into the country here. Additionally, if, if you've been following this, Haftar has the support of a key player in the region, Saudi Arabia, one of the major power brokers in the Middle East, and, and in this case, Northern Africa. So again, very interesting. So if he has the support of the United States and Saudi Arabia, uh, I, I guess I would give him pretty good odds of, of, of potentially becoming uh, the, the new leader of, of Libya. Not to say that this, this, these, these divides or these splits are over. That's, that's hardly the case, I, I think. But this also, I think, has some serious ramifications for, for the oil market. Libya has, has finally, uh, after many years, had some success in, in increasing their oil production, which is very important for their economy uh, that, that relied on it very heavily prior to the fall of the Gaddafi regime in 2011. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out if this turns into a major military confrontation, if elements like Saudi Arabia and the United States, which I'm sure are already on the ground, but, but if this ramps up, if the UN gets involved, if, the, if, say, France or Italy gets involved, how this plays out and, and if their oil production is, is going to be harmed. Now, next geopolitical article, before I finish up on a gold article, this is from Reuters. North Korea urges Trump to drop Pompeo from talks. U.S. plays down weapons tests. And this is kind of interesting. Now, <clears throat> a quick summary. North Korea recently conducted a missile test. It was a missile test, not a ballistic missile test, though, as they have done in the past, which has is, is been very seen as very provocative by, by South Korea, by the United States, and by Japan. In this case, it was what people would describe as a, a tactical missile. So either some sort of a cruise missile or a surface-to-air missile. Still, though, it could be seen as some, by some as, as potential provocation not quite in scale of ballistic missile. Now, this is interesting because I, I, I've kind of praised Trump. I, I take very much case-by-case -case basis in terms of, of what I support about Donald Trump and what I don't. And, and as a whole, I think his efforts in North Korea have been positive. I think it has really angered a lot of, of neoconservatives, including this Mike Pompeo fellow at, at, the, at the State Department, how he has actually met with Kim Jong-un twice now. And, and what I think is maybe even more significant than that has been uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, meeting with, with uh, the leader of, of South Korea. 
I mean, I think that is huge. I mean, these are these are groundbreaking events, and and I, I'll be honest with you guys, if I can speak frankly, it, it would break my heart to see that in two thousand eighteen and in two thousand nineteen that these meetings happen, which would have been unheard of maybe in the summer of twenty seventeen or before that uh, during the Obama regime during the Bush regime to see these meetings take place, it would be heartbreaking to see this go back to how it was before, or even worst case scenario, end in some sort of a hot war, some sort of military confrontation. It'd it'd break my heart. But with that being said, I I think this is kind of one of those black swans that that is back on the table, North Korea. I do. I I think that with this missile test, which is small, but, but not insignificant, even if US, as this article says, is trying to play down the weapons test, uh, uh, Trump and, and Kim Jong-un, or maybe I should say the neoconservatives and Trump and Mike Pompeo and then Kim Jong-un, still appear to be a ways away in terms of, of negotiations. Quite a bit of a distance there in terms of what Trump wants for their ballistic missile uh, program, their, their um, nuclear program, and what Kim Jong-un wants in terms of militarization or lack thereof, or maybe demilitarization of U.S. forces on the Korean Peninsula, maybe Japan, maybe Guam, maybe Hawaii. I mean, he's made some pretty crazy requests here, uh, potentially taking a page out of the book of, of Donald Trump, the, the art of the deal. So they're, they're still a ways apart. And, and I think the risk of miscalculation here is still very high. Now, a while back, I was actually listening to a podcast, one of my favorite podcasts, Macro Voices, and they had a, a guest on there, Dr. Pitha Malmgren, Malmgren who had a very interesting take on, on North Korea. Basically, that that what happens in North Korea is is linked to a whole host of issues in Eastern Asia, which include the U.S.-China trade deal, the South China Sea, uh, uh, um, the the whole uh, Huawei incident or or, or uh, situation uh, relates to to uh, many of these uh, issues at the core of the U.S. trade deal, whether it be the trade deficit or the um, intellectual property violations that, that China or that the U.S. Has, has accused China of, of potential espionage relating to, to their imported uh, or exported uh, electronic goods to the United States. And on and on and on, on. All these different issues. I'm sure the, the uh, 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 what is it? Um, the, uh, I, I forget what the name of the, the, the new, new, new initiative by One Belt, One Road or, or whatever it is by, by China uh, extending across Asia into Europe. Um, that initiative, I'm sure, plays into this. Uh, basically, the, the way she puts it is that, that this, this is all part of, of this, even Taiwan, that this is all part of this, this negotiation. So <sighs> trade deal people are watching the trade deal. The stock market in particular is watching the trade deal. But when, when we hear news like this in, in North Korea, them launching a tactical missile. Likely not something that they did without prior authorization from China, by the way. Or if we see news like, like uh, the United States sailing uh, ships in, in, in or around the South China Sea, if we see U.S. carrying out uh, uh, operations in conjunction with, with Philippines. I recently saw that uh, the United States is, is potentially brokering a deal or, or part of a deal with, with uh, Taiwan to sell something like a half billion dollars worth of, of F-16 to the country. You know, those types of things should move the markets just as much as some dumb rumor 
uh, report about the trade deal uh, uh, moving along. I mean, because we see these like every single day, every single week. Trade deals close to conclusion like three months ago. You know, those should move the market just as much because maybe these things are all interrelated. What happens on the Korean Peninsula relates to what happens in the South China Sea and 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 what happens with with Huawei and with Taiwan and on and on and on. So again, it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out. But but North Korea in particular, I think is back on the table in terms of, of a potential black swan. It's not something I think China wants, not something Russia wants, not something South Korea, I think, wants, not something Japan wants is a hot war in North Korea. But I think that there are those including those in the, the, the upper ranks of U.S. government, John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, the neocons that would be more than happy to see some sort of confrontation or if nothing less or nothing else, uh, more and more military spending, more and more enrichment of, of uh, uh, defense corporations to, to fund things like aircraft carriers and aircraft and, and, and the THAAD missile defense system and et cetera you know, on the, the Korean Peninsula. Even if South Korea is picking up part of that bill, I don't think it matters to them at the end of the day who's paying as long as they are getting payment. So finally, I, I want to finish, wrap this up with, with an article here. Again, from Reuters, India gold, this is from the, the 15th of April. India gold smuggling slowed by election seizures of cash and bullion. So I just wanted to share this with you guys. Uh, again, to relate to, to just how prized of a possession gold is in India that they've had to slow their operations recently because the country has been cracking down on what they call what this article I think refers to as as kind of gray market smuggling of of bullion, gold bullion and cash and booze and drugs that are aimed at potentially buying votes votes in India. Now this is, you know, in the United States I think would be kind of unheard of <laughs> buying votes with gold of all things. Now buying votes all, as a whole there's a whole lot of allegations of voter fraud here in the United States, and buying votes is not a very common one that I hear. Maybe it happens, but but not super common. But in this case, using gold to buy these votes is very interesting. Now, I mean, what is what is the price of a vote in India? You know, is that a, a gram of gold or, or or what? But but I found it very interesting, and uh, again relates to to just kind of the affinity that India has for for gold imports now. Um, the, the the main point of this article is that India has had to to <laughs> these gold smugglers had to bring back their operations somewhat because of of the crackdown on this gold smuggling and actually uh, the let's see what is it uh, banks within the world's second biggest buyer of precious metals has actually really benefited from this because they've been able to to sell gold on the the, what would you call it? the white market, the the, the uh, government sanctioned market, and it actually charged a premium over global prices on this gold uh, because they know they have, they have a bit of a monopoly on it. So if you, if you ever wonder why things like the black market or the gray market exist in this case, relating to India and the gold market, that's that's why because otherwise if you only have government sanctioned organizations selling these types of products, you, you have a monopoly and, and they can charge a a premium over the the kind of going price, the, the market price. But anyways, uh, this is kind of wrapping up my, my weekly wrap-up video. I hope you've enjoyed some of these different topics, some of these thoughts regarding the contagion risk in the global financial system and the the geopolitical risk in places like Libya and North Korea. As always, you know, if you have future topics that you'd like me to cover, let me know down below in the comment section. 
Um, again, I, I hope you uh, take some time to, to watch that interview that I did with Chris Vermillion yesterday. And also, uh, stay tuned for my video tomorrow, Saturday, uh, regarding this article right here that has been reported on uh, uh, Germans. Sorry, I'll get you this. Germans holding record amount of gold, so I'm going to be kind of break it apart. And, and what, do they really hold a lot of gold or not? kind of playing devil's advocate here. But but as always, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this video down below in the comment section. And thank you guys from the bottom of my heart, truly, for watching this video, listening to the podcast, and God bless.